Welcome to Jeremy's Iron. It is a weekly yarn about science, research, and 90s TV sitcoms. With me, Justin the Toolman Taylor. And me, Justin Baltakamos. I'm glad we have someone who can join us in our anagram game. We take proper names and rearrange the letters to form a description of that person. Like, uh... <laughs> you know that is right. I actually don't. Oh right. come on, Baltakabos? Yeah, Balki. Oh, Balki from to from Perfect... Mipos. Perfect strangers. Perfect strangers. Yeah, yeah. But he's from Mipos. Mipos? That's, oh, the that's, where, that's where he's from. That's yeah, really good. That's the country. Yeah. Mipos. Balki Baltakabos from Mipos. Did you ever watch Acropolis now? No, no. With Effie? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was Nick Mi- Mimo? Was Nick Giannopoulos in it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was okay. the main dude. I think. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, I haven't seen it. Now, that, that predates my Australian adventure. Right. So, this is Jeremy Zion. Yep. It is a scientific podcast. It we is. talk about research. Uh, we have a biostatistician here. That's me. Yep. And a orthopedic surgeon slash researcher slash... What else? Slashy. Slashy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it makes you sound like a dick. It, it does. Um, yes. But um, what we do is we talk about the new science that's come out recently. And we also have a little uh, special kind of focus for each episode. And this week, we are focusing on... Sir, what are we doing? Well, it's sort of a, a, a broad dive into social media okay. and the links between social media and, uh, I guess, self-image, depression, loneliness, all those kind of key jive words. Each other week, you kind of get the sense that there's some new research that's either saying that social media yeah. is creating you know, anxiety, havoc... Yeah. on our youngsters but then there's other ones that'll say that it's kind of the other way around and maybe sort of but I think it's anecdotal anyway. as well right you, you tend to hear people complain people are going off it people are shutting it down people are having that kind of this this war at all times with mm. their uh, with their social media accounts um, and the literature generally seems to support that I mean if you go online you'll see there's just huge amount of research into all the the kind of the <laughs> devastating links between social media use and sort of the end of of this generation. Um, well, you are talking to the number one Luddite here yeah, who is trying his best to yeah. extract himself from all forms well, of social media. this is why it's but, so interesting. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm more or less on the same page as you. It's true. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not a big social media guy. I would say, to be honest, I'd say I'd use it more than you. But You anyway. might. Yeah, you um, might. But we'll get into all that and sort of... The idea was to try and find a good paper that took a supportive view on instagram or social media mm-hmm. um and to try and tear that not tear it apart but kind of really dive into that and and see what it was saying about the possibly the good of uh of social media um so we'll talk it later about what i found and and uh kind of where that took me uh <laughs> it was look it's, i'm looking it's, forward to it because I, yeah I, look, it's more nuanced than i expected mm. but it all makes sense I'm looking forward to having a nice summary of all of the research, which is what we do. That's the whole gist mm-hmm. of Jeremy Zion. We take the pain out of yeah. We give going you a good summary research. of the eight articles that I looked at <laughs> quickly yeah. of the millions. There's so there are so many. Uh, we also do a segment called News Just In, where I quickfire go through a couple of the most recent scientific 
pieces of research. Oh, before we start, though, let's let uh, the listeners know that you engaged in some degree of a social experiment, right? Or a, a psychometric? A psychometric test. Yeah. yeah, it's a cool one. Yeah, it's a cool it one. It kind of links in with our, uh, our major topic today. So well, we'll talk a bit about what that was and how you did. Well, maybe let's start with that. Because that, that's kind of like a cool little starting... A teaser? Yeah. No, no, no. Let's start on the, me doing this um, the, the Yeah, test. I mean, it is a teaser for the main event, yeah. kind of. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. So... It's called the... What's it? The Iowa... The Iowa Gambling Test. Right. And it was put together by a guy called Antonio Damasio, who's a neurobiologist. Uh, I feel like that's a name. He's been around he's, the he's, Sam he's, Harris he's, podcast. He's and, massive. Damasio yeah. is one of the leading... Sam Harris neurobi- loves him, right? He loves him. Yeah. A lot, but a lot of people do. He's like very little controversy. He is big, big researcher in the field of behavior mm. and like neurodevelopment um, and all that kind of stuff. So he's got particular interests in so behavior... Uh, obviously, things like uh, addiction, uh, impulsive behavior, and things like that. Right? Excellent. So we know, for example, and that goes in, kind of links into this test, that um, people who have addiction, so alcoholism or drug addiction, um, make bad choices. Right. Now that's almost like a truism, because we associate doing the drugs with bad choices, but the reality is they actually end up with a either through cause or effect. Uh, high degrees of what's called impulsivity, right? So they're very impulsive. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, they tend to, or through that, they tend to make really bad choices. Life yeah. choices, whatever choices, right? <laughs> well, uh, and this so, test has proven that I tend to make bad and, choices. <laughs> and so people who have a gambling addiction, it, yeah. was a, it was one of the focuses of this study, and they came up with a, a card game to help work out whether people who have, uh, who self-report through, you know, a series of questions who are kind of, seem to have high degrees of sort of addictive behavior, mm. how do they prefer when they're put through this test yeah. uh, called the Iowa Gambling Test, which basically is just, it's four decks of cards. Yeah, so you, you see... did it. I just, I just did it then. So yeah. there's, there's four decks of cards, yeah. and they tell you at the beginning that you can, um, you'll either make money or lose money depending on which deck you've chosen. So you've got like, if you choose a deck, and it might say like you've won 50 bucks, or it might say you've won 100 bucks. I'm not going to ruin the, ruin the surprise for people, so you're meant to kind of do it without hearing some of the stuff. So I'll I'll keep it very low key so you can still do it without fear or favor. Um, And you can do this this online. Online, yeah. But make sure you don't don't get the the, um, spoilers. Like just go right. Iowa card. Was it Iowa card? Iowa gambling task. Gambling Iowa gambling task online. If you write that, you can go and do it. Yeah, there's a few different online ones. I do love the idea of trying to assess all these five big personality traits via a gambling-based card game because it really tests you because you're like, do you avoid things? Do you, you know? So anyway. And it's not... It's not self-reporting because self-reporting is so dangerous. Yeah. Right. And and direct questionnaires about what you do. It's better to actually try and see what you actually do. That's right. In it's the sort field. Of, it sees sees straight through it. And as soon as I saw this test that it exists mm. and that it kind of dealt with what we were talking about today, I couldn't wait for you to do it because of your particularly your recent uh, yeah kind of gambling problem. <laughs> what a gambling problem! I have gone down the rabbit hole of, of poker videos recently. I'm not you, quite sure why that's playing. Happening. Oh, I played it once or twice. Goodness, um, you sound like an addict, don't you? Yeah, oh shit, I do too. Like even oh, mo- please. In the context of addiction, even like modest behavior yeah. sounds like. I'm currently getting updates from Peter from RSL about when the next poker tournaments <laughs> coming. I don't every, every couple I, of hours on my phone. Yeah, <laughs> that's incredible. Fuck. I love how you you went like you're this neo luddite. You've gone for the uh, 
the the post office Alcatel phone, which can barely even send or receive text, <laughs> yeah. and somehow you found a way to get like hourly yeah. updates. Yeah. <laughs> like, hourly updates. Like of... you've got a regular smartphone, you're still circumventing the system with your addiction. Anyway, so this this test that I've done, yeah. um, it kind of I feel like it nailed me down on the big five to stuff that I probably would would agree to, like the, you okay. know the extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, neuroticism, and openness. It's amazing you can do that. Just from a card game. Yeah. So uh, based on whether, whether you're, you know, the, the objective is to try to make as much money as possible. And you yeah. start with a, a loan of $2,000. So it just means you can go into the negatives yeah. or go into the positives, right? Mm-hmm. The thing that struck me was that I ended up losing money. Like from 2000, I think I ended up with like $1,900 or whatever. Yeah. But um, you could see the scale because there's like a little bar that tells you how much money you have. And there was a lot of leeway on the positive side that I didn't actually get into. So I think quite clearly I was on the very low side of the <laughs> results from this gambling. But test. you made money. No, I didn't. I lost money. Oh, you lost money. Yeah. Okay, yeah. how much? Not a lot. Like a hundred bucks. Okay. I lost hundred. Well, down hundred dollars. Hundred right? hands and down hundred bucks. That's it. That's not too bad. Um, but it rated me as extremely high extroversion, um, very high neuroticism, low agreeableness, and around mid openness kind of thing, which. I don't know. I feel like this is the way I've sort of self, self-rated myself recently. So but, I feel like- but you you and I both did a proper psychometric personality test a few months ago, right? Yeah. And you were also in that test rated as being very high in neuroticism, weren't yeah. you? Yeah. 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 Well, so it, that's it, pretty it good. It pinned me down for being high in neuroticism. But yeah. the extroversion thing, I think, I think that sort of makes sense. I feel like I'm reasonably right. extroverted. Well, we're doing the show, aren't we? That's true. <laughs> that's true. Openness, yeah, I'm mid-range. And then like really, really low agreeableness, fourth percentile agreeableness. Well, again, we're doing this show, aren't we? Wait, well, does that mean you disagree? We're fairly contrarian. That's true. Yeah, so I think, look, it's are, it are got we, me, man. I don't know. For, really I don't really think we're me. particularly agreeable. Anxiety uh, about... It says, we nag each other all the time. Anxiety on the 47th percentile. That's about average, which yeah. we can probably bump that up a little. I think Avoid- you're more anxious than that. Yeah, I think so. Avoidance, very high, um, which is possibly true. So, look, I don't know. Somehow it's got me. I, I don't quite know... In my brain now, I'm trying to think of all the ways it pinned me down, but that's probably part of my... What I'm curious about is... Um, neuroticism. I want to know how the sausage is made here. Does it get all of that from the raw data? Or is it correlating that data against all the other psychometric tests of people who have performed similarly? Yeah, because it asks you a few questions at the beginning, yeah. but not a lot, just about your romantic partners and whether you... you know. So some of this would be informed by my answers to that, I'm sure. sure. Um, but maybe you're right. I think it must. Yeah, it probably does. I mean, it may be linking to in. a bank of people who have done proper psychometric testing about the personality. Yeah. And it's linking those, which are only linking them through their performance in this test with the otherwise measured results. Yeah. And then sort of giving you a proxy result for those tests. Maybe. Well, look, it's, it's, it's I done. Pr- I think it's done pretty well. Yeah. I think if, if it went the other way, it's I'd been be like, around this for is a, a few bullshit. decades now. And like Damasio is. You know, yeah, a kingpin. So look, any listeners, give it a go. Iowa, gam- Iowa gambling task. Okay. Um, we won't say any more than that because I don't want to you know, ruin it for you. But um, yeah, hit us up, Jeremy's Iron Podcast at gmail.com. Tell us, tell us how you went, <laughs> and we'll talk more about we'll talk more about that test specifically and why we did that test today. After. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, well, we we'll because that ties into all the other oh, junk yeah, we're right. talking about. So, all the so social let's, media let's... neuroticism stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but another thing we do on this podcast is a segment called News Just In. We do, which is me doing uh, very quickly me with the weekly science updates. Yeah, machine gun style. Are you ready yeah. for this? Uh, no. 
News just in. I said no. <laughs> self-driving cars are dicks. Uh, self-driving cars are set to cruise uh-huh. to avoid paying for parking. So say you were like, I don't know, um, heading to the games workshop to pick up a pack of magic cards or something of that nature. I was, I parked right in front of there two nights ago. <laughs> yeah. And it was a rainy night and inside was this glowing beacon of hope <laughs> and sanctuary. Yeah. And there's a sign outside that said, you are always welcome here. Games Workshop. And I was like, oh my God. This is the place to be. <laughs> this so, is my place. So say you were tr- trying to pick up a, a deck of magic cards, yeah. right? But you couldn't find a park. Now imagine your car is a self-driving unit and you own it, yeah. right? Yeah. So it wouldn't need to find a park for you, right? It drops you off. Yeah. Then what does it do? It just cruises around the block until you're ready to, to go, right? So what's wrong with that? Congestion. That's what's wrong with it, right? So ah. if you think about the future of all these cars, kind of like just rock it up and... Dude, this is the problem. You are thinking like, you you're you really are a luddite. You know, this is I. I, I don't use Justin. This is not me. This no, is, but you you're buying into it. No, check this out. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. This, this goes both ways. So yeah, all right. The, the this this piece of research basically is is they've done a lot of algorithmic stuff and try to figure out how the cars are going to like you know fit into this new yeah um, paradigm non the new self driving paradigm. Mm-hmm. But the I I like the idea that the cars are going to just start being dicks. You know what I mean? Like just for, for their own benefit, for the benefit of their drivers, I guess. But like... I, I've got so much to say it. right now. I'm, want, not, I'm want... not with you. Not even in jest. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Um, so, so myopic. True. So the idea, and this is what my, my... I actually told my brother this and he was like exactly the same. He was like, this is, this is a bit bullshit. Um, but the idea being that they'll actually then while they're cruising, they'll be cruising at sort of low speeds because that'll save them petrol and do all yeah. this kind of like things that would not necessarily be great for the overall environment and congestion and all this stuff. Uh, that, that's another problem. That's not true. Yeah. So the positives, and this doesn't actually come from the article, but, um, and this is probably what you're probably, you're about to get into, but once there's a fleet of shared like autonomous vehicles, mm-hmm. we won't even need parking at all. Cause it's going to basically that's drop you off into. and then go and pick up someone else. You won't have somewhere. a car. True. And all the cars will be talking with each other, which means that they are syncing with each other in terms of pulling out and pulling in yeah. and turning. Without any monkeys behind the wheels, it'd be perfect efficiency on the roads. It'd be way less cars because they'll be do instead of driving around the block waiting for you to get your magic cards, they'll left and pick someone else up. There is no congestion. Really? Well how about yeah. this, my friend? You so at the moment on me. how many cars have no humans in it on the road? How many right now? Zero. Right. So even under your new proposed efficiency yeah. of autonomous vehicles, right? Yeah. You probably say that about half the time they're probably not going to have humans in it. Well, maybe not half, but uh, no, a lot of the time. My, my, the world that I'm talking about, there are no humans behind any of the wheels. You have to have a pure fleet of sure. autonomous cars. Right. But what I'm saying is that having a car driving with no human in it is yeah. inefficient, right? So it has to pick someone up pretty quickly after it drops you off. For it not to add to congestion. Yeah. Because ultimately, I, people still need to go places, right? We're mm-hmm. not reducing the amount that we need to travel Well, I think that the idea is that they will be smart enough with their machine learning to know when they need to be in the city centers or where they need to be mm. to uh, maintain optimal flow. And they'll probably be like, you know, off, out of off-grid places where they can park when there are a surplus of cars, right? Yeah. So the idea it will be, it won't be hard. 
with all their learning and all their all their algorithms mm. to work out how many cars they need on the road and what kind of flow they need to maintain. So I don't think that's going to be a problem at all. And the the other interesting thing too, yeah, look, this, this I agree with. I, I actually agree with you, but I thought and, this was be, and, and when they're not picking up people, they'll be like making deliveries and picking up and dropping stuff off. Yeah, it'll be perfect. It's just going to be flawless. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, this is quite interesting because I can't wait. You know the stat drive. of um, fourteen? I think it's fourteen percent of Los Angeles is a car park. Did you know that? Like. As in, if you looked at the uh, bird's eye, whatever you call it, yeah. like the map of topographical map of um, yeah. Los Angeles, the greater region, yeah. 14% of that map is car park. Like sanctioned car park, officially car park. Yeah, yeah. With, yeah with or car, is that just saying that like the cars are just sitting there? No, 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 no. Oh, no, no. It is actual car park. Oh, come on. No, it's, it's a stat. I mean, a stat has to be true and I found it on the internet. <laughs> um, but what's interesting now is that any new kind of any new car parks getting built inside a whatever residential or commercial building, yeah. they're always now retrofitable for something else, for something else, for, for office space, other or, office payments or, yeah. or apartments so that they'll have the plumbing put in there so that as soon as Smart. we don't need them. Yeah. They well, can be think of how many like apartments. 10, 15 story parking lots you've seen, even in Sydney or Melbourne or like just, you know, yeah. around here. And, uh, it's just, it's massive apartment block or office space or usable space, right? Mm. Which we won't need at all in pro- within the decade, I'm assuming. All right, should we do the next one? Next yeah. uh, news just in. Vaz Deferens on ice. This is What's a good the Vaz Deferential on that? <laughs> Check this out. So drawing inspiration from the Galaxy cocktail, an actual cocktail that called the Galaxy. I don't know, but huh? I'll, I'll explain in a sec. Okay. Um, Zhao Lei Wang and colleagues devise a medium term reversible form of male contraception. Mm-hmm. So I'll tell you, so bartenders make a galaxy cocktail by layering colorful liquids in a glass. Yeah. And then if the beverage is stirred or heated, the layers combine into a uniform liquid, sure. right? Uh-huh. So I love that the guy's name is Wang. Wang and colleagues wondered if they could use a similar approach to inject layers of materials to block the vas deferens, uh-huh. uh, which is the duct that conveys sperm from the testicle to the urethra. Yeah. Um, and then basically applying heat then would cause the layers to make the t- layers to mix and break down, essentially unplugging the pipeline. So this is, you know, in- inject the vas deferens with these layers of, of whatever, right? Which sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but then all you do is you sort of, I don't know, have a ultraviolet or, or some kind of like infrared, like heating thing or whatever. Yeah. And then it removes whatever's in there. So... Um, basically, they tested their approach. I love how you just like pointed to your back. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> because you kinda, that's well, I guess yeah, the front, whatever. Uh, <laughs> Do you have any idea where your penis is? Yeah. The term tested. <laughs> the, the term tested their approach in male rats. So they they sequentially injected four layers of materials into the vas deferens. Yeah. So there's a hydrogel that forms a physical barrier to sperm. Uh huh. Uh, gold nanoparticles, which um, heat up when irradiated with near infrared ru- infrared light, mm-hmm. and then here we have ethylene diamine tetraacetic acid, EDTA. <laughs> oh yeah, EDTA. Of course. Yeah, right. Sure. Yeah, I know EDTA. It's like a buffer. Okay. Well, it's a chemical that breaks down the hydrogel and also kills sperm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then another layer of gold nanoparticles. So they inject yeah, the materials. We use EDTA all the time in the lab for 
I think I think we use it as like, as like a neutral buffer mm. of some sort. It's, we use it for mixing solutions and things like that. So the idea is that the injected materials uh, keep rats from impregnating females, male rats from impregnating females for more than two months. Um, when they shine a near infrared lamp on the rats for a few minutes, the layers yeah. mixed and dissolved, allowing the animals to produce. So, so again. It, it really just blocks your pipes. Yeah, blocks your pipes, and then. But you gotta get a needle into your, into your dingus, or your like, I don't know. Dingus. No, um, <laughs> oh, it's, it's interesting to to put the onus on men for uh, you know medium term medium term contraception. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was interesting, and there couldn't be a more appropriate Wang et al. Right. Pretty good. News just in. This is from our favorite journal. Which is? Journal of Duh. Fried mm-hmm. food is bad for you. Come on. This is in, this is in the, the I BM- want. Tell me more. Tell me Wait. more. Yeah. This is in the BMJ. It is Sun et al. Association. The BMJ is? The British Medical Journal, right? Yes. Yeah. Association of fried food consumption with all cause cardiovascular and cancer mortality. Prospective cohort study. Mm. So basically, regularly eating fried food is linked with a heightened risk of death from any cause and heart-related death among postmenopausal women. And this just makes oh, so only in postmenopausal women. Yeah, yeah. Thank God. Yeah, but this makes me mad on a sort of continuing basis for what we've had gripes with on this podcast, which is, you know, fried food's bad for you. Do we really need to sort of titrate out the exact? effects of fried food on the you know well marginal increase in you know whatever cancer and i totally i i I agree partially but i think that we there are still people who are eating that food and we it's good to nut out more detail about it because we may be able to find a way to attenuate to keep that flavor and keep kind of the cult traditions of certain fried foods right. and maybe by teasing out some of the details and the mechanisms maybe we can actually come up with some protective solution beyond sort of abstinence of that food yeah. so that's one thing I will tell you a piece of research that I read this week which is my version of what that is for you right yeah. so you, you get frustrated when there's really obvious research that you well, don't think it's, needs it's to be done well it's kind of like we, you know you know that bad food is bad for you, right? Sure. And I think I think there's there's no jury that's still out on whether fried shit in large quantities is going to be a healthy situation, right? You know, exercise is good. Eating lean foods is good. Of course. Vegetables are good. Man, like, after I had McDonald's McNuggets last week for the first time in 20 years, yeah. and they blew my mind, <laughs> yeah. I am, yeah. I am really, desperate yeah. for a cure or an answer for how we can make <laughs> fried food healthy because, uh, oh my God. <laughs> I haven't had the nug- I haven't took, had nuggets oh my, in decades, so dude, maybe I need to do that. For took lunch. me. It's been twenty something years since I've had my nuggets, and yeah. it took I, uh, so many things from your childhood are not as good as they were when you have them again. These were better. These were better than I ever imagined they could <laughs> be, and I want them so bad now. But okay, so your your pet peeve with science is kind of constantly repeating really obvious research to which the answer won't really change our outcomes or what we know about behavior or modification of our diets and things like that. My pet peeve, yep, which has come up before and it'll come up again, and I read a late-breaking story about this a couple of days ago. Dinosaur research. What? <laughs> dinosaurs. We don't need to know anything else about dinosaurs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess it's not teaching us anymore anything about the human. They condition. died out. We're talking like trillions of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but yeah, billions. What do you mean? Sixty-five million. Is that, was that when they went? Yeah. 
Oh, I'm sorry. Well, that's 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 particularly uh, <laughs> contemporary. <laughs> it seems it, it seems as though it, it, people talk about like well, we can learn from them. Well, can we? If they were killed by an asteroid, there isn't anything about their behavior that was going to save them. <laughs> and nothing about their diet that's going to save us should an asteroid come as well. So this article I read was about, I think it was about long-necked dinosaurs. So your your Bronto- Brontosaurus. Brontosaurus doesn't exist, dude. You're, really? Jesus, you haven't. What are you talking about? Bro- the Brontosaurus. I had a poster in my room that tells me that Brontosaurus that's existed. That's old science. That, is, that has been proven wrong for decades. What? The Brontosaurus was a mis... So where did giraffes come from? <laughs> That's good. From the Brachiosaurus. Got you. All right. Yeah. Makes sense. So the Brachiosaurus, and I think the Apatosaurus, if I'm not mistaken, are the, the major long-necked dinosaurs. Brontosaurus was a misconstruction of multiple other dinosaur bones. Really? So there is no such thing. There are similar things this to a Brontosaurus, but the Brontosaurus, as it was described, does not exist. This is freaking me out. It's yeah. probably as much as when I was told that the daddy long legs is but not poisonous. But the most important thing is, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't change anything about the world. Because there was another long dinosaur that was just slightly different. But the this article was about how they've worked out through careful kind of analysis of bones, um, environment, whatever footsteps they can find, you know, fossilized in, in um, you know, in 65 million year old, uh, like... Whatever planes they could find, that they would, when they were walking and turning, they would twist their paw ahead of their turn. Okay. All so right, their yeah, paw yeah. would turn first before, before the they body turned. Right. Okay. Yeah. Whew. Pretty interesting. That's that's <laughs> definitely glad, like. I'm glad we've noted that one out. <laughs> hundreds of thousands of dollars sunk into that research. That's like. It's going to change it all. I mean. Oh, don't you just have a very kind of, I don't know boring view of research there justin you need you need to kind of expand your mind a little these are these are things that will enrich our lives if not make them I am more happy. efficient the, I, we went over this a while ago one of the only papers i found in defense of the reason why we should consider uh, continue kind of dinosaur paleontology um is as a beacon of sort of interesting hope uh for young kids to pursue science so right but my idea is that continuing that research, I mean, we have tons already. We don't, we don't get rid of paleontology. It has existed for, for a century or more, right? So it's all, it's all there. Kids aren't reading about the twisting of a dinosaur's foot when he's walking. So I think that the inspiration to kind of do science and archaeology and stuff is still there for these kids. I don't know. I read The Ancestor's Tale last year, which is a, the Dawkins yeah. book going back through time, mm-hmm. um, trying to look at all I read the... That too. Our co- you read it? Yeah. And it's fucking fascinating, Dude, and, you, and you learn course. and yeah. you learn incredible amounts by going back and seeing when the first sort of bipedal, you know, animal first turned its foot inwards or whatever, and you realize that oh shit, we've been doing that ever since, and that's the reason why humans play football, and you know, I think we've got enough. Yeah. Okay. I think, well, I think we're good. I think we're good. All right. What do you got next? That's it. We're that's gonna it? do. We're gonna do the main event. All right. So we'll come back after a little musical interlude and have a look at social media. Social media, Instagram in particular. Okay, right. Okay. Good to know.
Okay, we are back. We're back. Let's talk um, gambling, impulsive behavior. I'm, can you see how you're tying in my gambling into this uh, social media-based discussion? Well, but- this is this is an intervention, just. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! Yeah, so you would talk about you know going to the RSL to play poker. Uh, you, you cleaned up, at least you say you cleaned up a few weeks ago at uh, at Crocs Poker Night. I did. All you talk about is sitting at home late night watching poker videos. Doug Paul, you're swiping right on Tinder. Uh, I know you're accessing Instagram somehow. I'm not. Instagram, I'm not. If you can see yourself right now, <laughs> the point is, me, our listeners. We think you have a problem. <laughs> All of my friends are here, <laughs> and I tricked you. Uh, they're they're listening, and I I you know I use this as a vehicle to get you to do this gambling test to show you that you make bad choices. Okay, right? <laughs> I do. <laughs> you make bad choices. Um, no, but the idea is that there was a paper that came out. Um, I think it was just this year by Meshi et al. M E S I M E S H I. Okay, Meshi. Yeah. Yeah, not the Hungarian version. Yeah. I don't know what M E S H I Indian looks like to me. Okay. Uh, in the Journal of Behavioral uh, Addictions, mm-hmm. where they looked at uh, addiction and impulsive behavior in people who self-report as being high Instagram users. Interesting. So, if you're a high social media user, yep. Um, you tend to show behavior that is kind of consistent with addiction behavior. So people who have gambling problems, people who have alcohol or substance abuse problems, they all tend to behave very similarly. It's a prefrontal cortex problem, I think, mm-hmm. is what they've said. Um, and when they do the Iowa gambling test, which has been validated over several decades as being a good predictor of impulsive behavior, uh, and it comes down to making bad predictive choices, right? So it's kind of like life. You get kind of information that's doled out to you based on the actions that you take, and then using that information, you make subsequent choices, and people who have addictive behavior or are, or are addicted to things mm. um, are impulsive and show bad decision making. Well, I guess um, the, the so how did you fare beyond the personality metrics that it spat out? How did you think you did in terms of? It told me I did very badly. Okay, yeah. So you make bad choices. Apparently, yes, yeah. that's right. I could have told you that based on what you order at cafes most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think my version of that is the uh, like I go out to lunch or dinner yeah. with someone, and we get a we get a menu. Is the uncooked vegetables thing coming back <laughs> yeah. to haunt me? Yeah, okay. uh, amongst so many things, yeah. <laughs> I think you do tend to make bad food choices, and I think most of our friends would attest to this. <laughs> yeah, and even at like Hojack last week, that was not a good a choice. It was it not was, a good choice. It was a good choice, and it's such a good restaurant. Oh, it's no. like no bad food, and you, know you can th- just I'm hone in. I need to go back to get the nasi, nasi lemak yeah. because... Ugh, Dude, I, was, I went back there two nights ago. It was so good. Yeah. You can't make a bad choice that restaurant. I somehow did. You did. You always do. You're like a homing device for bad food choices. <laughs> and um, so that's my test. It's yeah. a bit more like in the field where I have to spend some time with somebody and kind of present them with... Actually, you could probably do some sort of an app which is like a menu and you could probably correlate the food choices with... Um, people's personality and other kind of, sort okay. of other sort of markers of good decision making. And then and you I, give them like some slot basically and, and ask and well, try no, to figure I out think, where they I order think it do, again. Like you did, an, a totally online or app based version where it's like a fake menu and people choose whichever meal appeals to them and then or it would be a series of menus and at the end it would spit out all these psychometrics about you tend to make really bad choices. <laughs> You're <laughs> impulsive. You pick the like for some reason, you pick the pre-packaged vegetable platter as opposed to the, you know, the menu would say like... We gotta move past that. We gotta move past that. <laughs> the menu would say like Joe's Famous Burgers and then 
the candidate might choose like the spaghetti, and you'd be like, "Why did you choose the spaghetti? What 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 weird, impulsive, bad decision behavior was that to go against the grain?" All right, all right. Let's talk research. What's what do you got? So what's the? But um, no, but that's the point. They, yeah, that, I'm with that, you. Yeah, I'm yeah, with yeah. you. So that's not that's less about you. But it's about another method of coming up with. Uh, a uh, an algorithm for working out decision making <laughs> and impulsive behavior. We can but do a subsequent same idea. Po- subsequent so podcast. They found that yeah. yeah. So they found that bad decision making is associated with Instagram use, which sort of validates social media use as a true addiction in the same way that other things are. And then that's not really a surprise, right? Mm-hmm. I think most people will acknowledge that they are addicted to the internet, addicted to their cell phones, and very easily uh, will acknowledge that they're addicted to social media. Like when I've used it profusely. I've absolutely acknowledged that I had some degree of addictive behavior mm. with it, right? Um, but I thought that was a really nice kind of way of kind of weaning into this discussion about um, about social media, about kind of patterns of use. Um, and you you don't, at least superficially, seem to use it very often, to my eyes. Well, I don't have a smartphone, so you, I can't use it But you've taken steps so you can't. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You've sort of... Um, but if I'm on a laptop or whatever, yeah. I still like check in with Facebook regularly. Okay. And, you know, sort of... Uh, I am aware of it happening, so I tend to nip it in the bud reasonably quickly. Yeah. But I'm still, you know, multitasking with every... Every, I would say, five, ten minutes, a part of me goes, I've got to check my email again, even though yeah. there's nothing there. And, you know, that's why when I'm studying, if I need to focus on something for a period of like a, a multiple days or weeks, I have made steps in those moments to get rid of all of those things mm. so that I can't mm. uh, even, you know, leave my phone as far away from me as possible so that I, I can't actually access that stuff. Um, but that all comes into some of the future research that we'll talk about because there's lots of different facets to this discussion. Um, how do you feel about that use that you have? I mean, the words that come up a lot in the research, and this is kind of what we're diving into, is um, loneliness, depression, um, self-esteem, mm. and social comparison. Those are really the, the big four terms that if you look up Instagram or social media and behavior, mm. um, that will come up over and over and over again. Um, and they're kind of the prime metrics by which it's judged. How do you feel about those? Well, aside from turning this into a psychoanalysis of one Justin Zeltzer, but well, no, I, I mean super, super, I think superficially. Superficially, I don't think I'm aware of which one of those categories makes me feel bad. Yeah, like I just think that there, I, I can sense that do you, being on social media, like the and Bumble I'll, or whatever, yeah. for for a period of more than a few minutes, I start to feel anxious. I can I can okay. feel it. Um, and because I'll throw in also that. When I mention those words, each of those words can be appreciated to be a spectrum of feeling or behavior, right? Hmm. Wherein loneliness could also be um, connectedness. You could actually feel more connected. Now, we tend to use the word loneliness as the the prime word for that, in particular because we tend to associate sort of uh, maybe pejoratively, but that's sort of the the halo around social media use. But it can go both ways. I mean, these things are, in principle, about connectivity right mm. so you could easily feel good as an outcome of this behavior so i'm not i'm not assuming negative no, I, behavior. I, i've i've generally felt negative okay. associate negative associations with all types of social media for me and yeah. and positive when i'm dealing with people in the flesh mm-hmm. um there's a stark dichotomy between sure. my two states of being yeah very happy with life and enjoying things, sleeping well and whatever. Yep. And 
being more intensely involved in things like Facebook and yeah. I don't do Instagram, but you know. So I think I feel the same way as you. Yeah. I think that usage of those things makes me feel. I don't know if I feel more lonely. But here's the here's the thing that I think is going to tie in with the research. Yeah. Like I'm not sure whether it's my setting, as in Justin. Yeah. That causes those effects. I'm not going to try to generalize that to the yeah. whole population. I feel like I might have some kind of predisposition towards being anxious mm-hmm. using these. Sure. Social media, whatever's right. Yeah. So whereas. A normal person, inverted commas, might be fine with it. So I'm tempted not to generalize to say social media is bad. Mm. But but it's bad for you. But if you're, yeah, if you have these sort of people-pleasing, anxious predispositions. Well, if you do the Iowa gambling test. And lose all your money, yeah. yeah, And it says that you are an anxious type. Yeah. Right? Or you you write your anxious trait. Hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that's really important. And I think that what you said will be teased out a bit more with some of the research. What I was hoping for, which I mentioned earlier, was I wanted to find, um, this is kind of hope against hope, find a really good paper um, that was powerful, that showed support in some direction for social media or Instagram in terms of being um, improving connectedness, improving self-esteem, hmm. doing something like that, something that was... Well, research and evidence to show that it's not all bad for everyone all the time. Right. Um, I didn't quite find that. Um, but I, what I did find was that it isn't binary. And that makes sense. I mean, nothing is, right? Um, but certainly Instagram use, which is a kind of the prime marker that I use, because it seems to be one of the most popular forms of social media now. Mm. Um, yeah, it's there's a lot of facets to it in terms of who goes into it, cause and effect... And sort of the the different patterns of usage in terms of what outcomes you expect, mm. and that doesn't make a lot of sense maybe right now, but I'll explain. Okay, so we start off with the Iowa gambling task. We show that we do have signs of addictive or obsessive behavior with Instagram, which seems to correlate with bad decision making, impulsiveness, which will make you keep on using it some more. So that's all kind of what addiction is. Yep. Even if it doesn't make you feel good, even if you're losing money, like. Um, gamblers tend to do you still keep on doing it because it's not about um, the long term rewards or losses it's about some sort of instantaneous impulsive behavior that's being encouraged right Mm -hmm. Um, so that all makes sense why you'd keep on using it in the face of it being generally bad for you potentially Um, but at the same time despite the fact that you type in Instagram social media depression anxiety self esteem 98% 98% of the hits that come back are all negative negative correlate or positive correlations between oh sorry yeah yeah it's it's a negative, negative outcome implications negative implications but positive associations between yeah. their use and um, negative outcomes loneliness yeah. poor self esteem Hefner et al uh, in clinical psychological sciences um, did a study recently this is just I think end of last year mm-hmm. where they looked at sort of a longitudinal study um, there's a lot of studies that have looked at sort of cross-sectional studies, right? So they get a bunch of university students to come in. They do self-reporting about how much do you use it and how do you feel. Yeah. And that gives you a very thin sliver of kind of... And not, yeah, and not great in trying to tease out any causative effects, right? No. It's all just associations at It's this just point. a cross-section. Yeah. This is, we're using it. This is who is, how they feel. We don't really know what's cause and effect, but people are assuming that it's 
Yeah, it's use making it. you anxious, exactly. making you yeah. more lonely. Where it could, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's possible just the lonely people use it, right? So, so this study wanted to look into following these people over a period of a couple of years, and also looked at different age groups. So they looked at I think adolescents, thirteen to thirteen to sixteen years old, mm-hmm. um, tracked their use, self-reported use. I don't think they looked at any other objective measure of how it was used, and then self-assessment of um, of how they felt. So they did it for two years, and they did a, I think, a three to six year follow up study for university students, ages I think like, you know, like nineteen to twenty four or something, mm. uh, and did the same thing: self reported use and self reported um, psychological well being studies, and they found that amongst all those uh, groups, no real connection between depression. Or loneliness and the use of social media. And this is the most recent paper. This is one of the most recent papers. And look, I think it was done reasonably well uh, in the sense that it's it's at very least a longitudinal study. They followed people up. Um, Obviously, you can always improve upon self-reported behavior. Yeah, I'm so skeptical around self-reported use. I mean, I know personally, and I'm sure you'd agree, my self-reported use of almost anything is so far off the mark. My self-reported use of how much I drink, my self-reported use, uh, my self-reported uh, figures regarding how much I use various things, I'm sure are so far off the mark. Um, and so I find that a little bit weak, but it was interesting. But they did find an association or a correlation between one group in particular, which was adolescent girls seemed to have sort of a reverse cause and effect, which was anxious adolescent girls or adolescent girls who showed um, some tendencies towards depression or loneliness tended to, from they could tease out to turn towards social media as a way to sort of cheer themselves up. So instead of social so, media so making what, them yeah, sad, got you. they seem to find that through their self-reported studies uh, and usage, it seemed to be behavior first or mood first followed by use got it. to sort of improve or medicate that mood. So, does this stand in contrast to a whole bunch of other research that's before it? I mean, this sounds like it's quite... Well, it it seems to. It, it clangs seems, for mine because I feel to. like all the other so studies... So, this seem to... goes against what is called the Kraut Paradox. Ooh. And we love paradoxes. Not It's not a German paradox. Um, so, we tend to think of all these problems as being fairly recent, right? So, social media... Where do you think social media goes back to? I mean, what, what's the... The earliest uh, date. MySpace, kind of 2005, 2004. Yeah, right. So I would have said 2006 for um, Facebook when it kind of hit the ground, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's when I got it. And that's when that, that world first opened up to me beyond just email. Um, and then it was, you know, within a few years, people were talking about how it was kind of the negative influences of Facebook. And then we kind of have Twitter, Instagram around 2010, right? So the last almost decade huh. already with those guys. Um, but people have been talking about these problems since the mid-90s. So Kraut et al. Um, came up with a paper in the American, I think it was an American psychologist. So a reasonable a paper, a, a journal of pretty good repute. So this came out in 98 and they did a study over the course of a couple of years. So we're looking at basically the dawn of the internet. They took 169 people and observed their behavior with internet use over the first one to two years. Their hotbot searches. Of, of their them ever using net, it, right? Netscape Navigator. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Lycos. Bookmarks. They're yeah. web crawling. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Ask so, Jeeves. <laughs> I think Ask Jeeves is a bit later. But I think that basically these guys are looking at um, GeoCities use. 
Right, yeah. Right? So this is a purely GeoCities-based economy. An MIRC chat room. Exactly. All that stuff. AOL, yeah. if it's American. Got it. So, um, and this, they, these guys, are, these are people who had basically had only ever had in-person communication up to this point, telephone or face-to-face, mm. because no one's really writing letters in the 90s anyway, right? And suddenly, they had email, they had chat rooms, and that was probably the bulk of internet use in the first couple of years. And so they were testing them at that early stage. Yeah. And they found that the paradox was that you would predict that having a new mode of communication between people would improve feelings of loneliness, improve social connection, um, and these kind of, and, and obviously decrease depression because those things are markers of good mental health, right? Hmm. Um, and they found the exact opposite. They found that in the, even those first years where it was wow. as raw as it was, they found that people were interacting less with their family, interacting less with their friends in person. Um, they were showing higher degrees of depression, loneliness, um, and so you know, lower reports of, of self-esteem. That's in 1998. And so that's sort of become the benchmark for how we evaluate um, what we now call social media, or you know, basically connectedness through right. the internet. Um, and so we've, this has been there since the very dawn of, of connection. And I'm sure if we went back further, we'd find the same things with radio, TV, even print media, right? I'm sure each of these had the same predictions and probably to some extent have had the same effect, right? Right. People watching TV more to get connection, but losing real connection, at least on the radio instead of talking to people. And there's always a generation prior that was warning against these things. And they're pro- absolutely, they seem to be probably right about most of these things, right? Yeah. Um, and I guess the, 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 the fact that it's coming out in such a big way now is probably yeah. testament to the fact that it's so stark an increase in all this stuff. You yeah. know, it's been gradual. The in- introduction of radio and television and all that stuff. And the fact probably that... Probably quite now, a mild little gradient yeah. there, but... Instead of having to go and access it at a hub like you used to, yeah. it's now in your pocket and in a way that is so hard to avoid that it's probably having a much... Probably, I guess, the term would be greater penetrance, mm-hmm. right? So you have more people accessing it at more times because it's just so fluid, so easy to access, right? Um, so that's a pretty big paper. Now, six years later, the world's changed tremendously, right? So 2004, so think about that. This paper came out in 1998, and all they had were chat rooms, right? Um, 2004, a paper comes out by Hunt et al. And even back then, this is 2004, it's called um, No More FOMO. 2004? Yeah. Actually, no, wait, that was not the paper. No, the paper that talked about in 2004, no, that was Shaw, sorry, 2004, there's a paper by Shaw et al. in a journal called Innocently Internet Research. That's what really this was, right? Wow. The journal was just called the Journal of Internet Research. Yeah. Awesome. And it was called In Defense of the Internet. And it was kind of an anti-Kraut paradoxy in paper. And 2004, six years later, man, we were well past Google and stuff. We still only really had email and chat rooms as the forms of internet communication. Right. And so their metric was... Forums as well. Forums. So they're, they're true, good forums. We had the forum. We had a great forum. Right. Um, so 2004, they were looking into chat group use. And they found when they put people in the chat groups for a couple of hours a day or whatever the metric was with strangers, um, they found that their self-reported loneliness um, decreased and so did their feelings of depression. So they found that at some point, for some people... Having that connection was actually what you would expect with the internet, which is that internet connects people, hmm. and connected people should be protective against these kind of negative feelings. Hmm. Um, so we're starting to have a bit of pushback. 
saying, well, maybe it's not so bad. It can, and in principle, the internet could be used for great good, right? So we're already starting to see that for some reason, in some context, maybe for some people, under some conditions, it can be really bad, but maybe it can actually be used for good. Now, this is not, none of that is earth-shattering. No. Right? But it does show that there's a lot more nuance in this and that it can be I'm just still surprised it goes back to the 98 kind of thing when they were studying Same discussion yeah. we're having right now, right? Jeez, okay. We just have much more of it now. Um, so what was this FOMO one? Or have we still got some to go before uh, FOMO? No, so we talk about the FOMO one. So the FOMO one, um, where is it here? It was... Oh, I just lost my piece of paper. Yeah, Hunt et al. Uh, talk about no more FOMO, limiting social media use, uh, decreases loneliness and depression. So this is a fairly recent one. I think this came out sort of mid last year. And the Journal of Social and Clinical Psychology, another very good journal. They did a very good test in which they... They tried to be as objective as possible, and they're actually measuring quantitatively how much Instagram or social media use someone logged on their phone. So what they would do is they got self-reported uh, assessments of mood, depression, whatever else, um, and then they monitored how much they used, and they also monitored battery usage. So they could work out how much time people actually spent on their phones. Mm. So they tried to remove this degree of self-reporting, which I think was a big problem in that big Hefner study, which was... Longitudinal, great, but all self-reported from what I could tell. So what Hunt found was that, in fact, the outcomes depend very much upon how you walked into the study. So people who already self-report with some degree of depression or tendency towards loneliness, uh, which is a bit what you were talking about, with some degree of sort of innate higher anxiety trait performance, uh, they found that they did particularly badly if they continued or increased their social media use. Um... But those people fared better if they could decrease their use from their baseline. So they tracked how much they were already using social media. And really the delta, like in all things, is what's important, right? Yeah. Um, and if they could, there was a very linear relationship between how much they decreased their time on those apps and their mood at the so end of the study. So basically a dose response, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So there seemed to be a real response. And this was a more, even though it wasn't done, over, I think it was done over the course of a few months. So it's a reasonably good study in that sense, you know, um, but definitely more objective than some of the other studies we've seen. Mm. And so I thought that was, and that's again what you, what we would expect with these things. But again, it starts to nail that it's not totally binary in terms of Instagram, social media, good or bad. It really depends very much on the individual and um, when you walk into it and kind of how how that affects their baseline mood, right? So some people are more prone to loneliness or, or whatever else. And whatever Instagram seems to offer, for some people, they pick up on the worst elements of it. Mm. And some people seem to be able to run with doing quite well with Instagram in healthy doses. They moderate it well, or they just, they're looking for something else out of it. And, and that's what we kind of get into, which is patterns of use, which I think is what's really important. So obviously, we have sort of set and setting kind of like LSD, like, like you're saying, talking about, is it you yourself or is it the app itself? Well, we get into this idea that well, I, I guess there's, it there's, depends on who you are and mm. what kind of what your, what your tendencies are, right? Before you open that Pandora's box, this kind of, this box of infinite opportunity, mm. where does it take you? So there was a paper that came out by 2015 by Lupp. I think it's a Dutch or Flemish name. Loop. Loop. Because I think it took place in Ant. Antwerp, so it's Belgian. I think it was. I think it's a. This is an Antwerpian study, and it's a very long-winded title. Instagram exploring associations between Instagram use, depression symptoms, uh, negative social comparison, 
Um, and social and uh, I can't read what I wrote for that. Whatever doesn't matter. Um, and that was in the paper of Cyber Psychology, Behavioral and Social Networking, which is a journal that actually gets frequently kind of published in for this kind of stuff. And they took a whole bunch of people, I think it was 170 people between the ages of 18 and 29, and and they kind of broke down Instagram use into how you can access it, right? So there's different kinds of people that would access it, like we said, but you can also access it differently, right? You can either be a user, like kind of a, uh, a browser, of Instagram, and if anything, that's what, probably what I do if I'm on it, just looking at pictures. Mm. Um, or you can be a publisher, right? You can actually be a broadcaster on internet. What about someone that, like, I go to Instagram, I don't really have an account, but I, if there's like someone a, a menu I want to see that I know yeah. gets posted up, I will go to Instagram.com. And, well, there's some, some uh, like restaurants I go to, right. I'll have like a, menu, a daily menu, like the lentils. Okay, Instagram yeah, right. Whatever, yeah, but so, stuff like that. But yeah, sure. I, will, I will go there for specifics and then go off it, and mm-hmm. I won't stick around and browse because I don't really log into my account yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's a different class of user, but... Well, there was think- another paper, which we won't talk about because it's a little bit extraneous, but they looked at like thousands of Instagram users, high power Instagram users, and used machine learning to break down eight subsets of like user types in terms of, primarily in terms of posting. So okay, like, right. there's like selfie posters, there are <laughs> uh, like food posters, yeah. And they there's tend do, to be Doctor Lewis Ehrlich, Doctor Lewis Ehrlich posters, one category. Yeah. Uh, you know, headshots with with mantras, yeah, <laughs> with, with uh, <laughs> like what's it, non sequitorial mantras, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so what they found was that if you're the kind of person that tends to just browse, then you'll actually probably come out all right. Like they actually tend to report stronger feelings of of self esteem and and don't seem to be particularly lonely, but if you do the opposite, if you are a poster, um, you tend to actually have negative feelings. So higher feelings of anxiety um, and depression and loneliness. Interesting. I yeah. did. I wouldn't have thought that actually. Well, there, I would have thought that the. the, the I think their hmm. theory was that if you, if you're following, they seem to suggest that it's a more responsible way of using it, because you aren't looking for a response. You're get. You can kind of pull from it what you want, right? Um, but if you are posting stuff, then you're waiting for responses and you're waiting for likes and you need the social validation. Uh, interesting. So, so we, we actually have a common friend who doesn't use social media to yeah. post for his um, like newborn baby or whatever, sure. right? Because his thoughts are it's going to make other people feel bad or whatever, right? Yeah. He's, he's bought into the idea that, you know, social media totally. is... A, and so in, in a very thoughtful way, it's like, mm. I'm not going to parade my successes or whatever in front of all of my friends because yeah. it's for me only and whatever. But... I guess he's almost protecting himself there, it seems, as opposed to protecting everyone else. Absolutely. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So that's one way of looking at it. Um, and that's a big problem. And people say that one of the keywords that comes up is social comparison. Yeah. Right? Um, or two words, really. Mm-hmm. And some people are more prone to being um, just socially compare or to be prone to social comparativeness. And those people in a lot of these studies do tend to do quite badly because both posting and receiving or kind of browsing tend to lend yourself to kind of comparing yourself to other people. Yeah. Um, so there's a paper by Verduin, which I think was also a Lowlands paper. I think they're also Belgian or Dutch. It's Dutch, it's from Leiden. So these are again, same, similar areas, so similar demographic, right, as well. 
Um, do social networking sites encourage or condone um, or enhance or what's this? I can't read my handwriting again. Basically, is it good or bad for social well-being? Yeah. Uh, and that was in the paper of social issue and policy review. What they found was the exact opposite, which is what you expected, right? Which is that passive use um, tends to increase social comparison because you're just seeing what other people are broadcasting and you're comparing your life to theirs. Um, and people who are active users, people who are posting, seem to find or gain more social capital out of it. They get some sort of a currency. That's right. You out get, of you get a and they get the, val- and they get the validation. Of, yeah. So rather than the anticipation and waiting for likes or no likes, they just take it all and they just love getting hits and whether it's any at all, and they seem to, on the whole, come out ahead from being broadcasters rather than users. And they tend to, on balance, feel more connectedness as a result. I guess because it's a two-way communication. You put something out and you get something back out of it, right? There actually is some degree of communication with other people. Whereas if you're just reading, it's not really a communication in the truest sense, right? Mm. You're, you're pulling it's information. One way. It's one way. It's yeah. one way. So that makes perfect sense as well. So you can, I understand both sides. And again, it's obviously very nuanced. And I don't quite know what to tease out of both those papers in terms of which is better and which is worse. Because they're saying the exact opposite thing. And they're both performed in a very you, similar way. Here's a question for you. What do you think makes this difficult to to really tease out I, I feel like the effects there are strong yeah yet we can't get conclusive directionality with some of these effects like is, is it just the fact that self-reporting of all these things is difficult like what is I making think self-reporting this, is a big problem yeah, yeah. as in like just trying to assess someone's anxiety level yeah. i mean usage surely is easy to monitor right that that calculation should be easy it should be and i think that also people use it very differently. And that's where we're finding in terms of the papers about the patterns of use. Here, we're even just looking at very basic, again, binary patterns of use. You're either using it or you're not, or you're or using and broadcasting it, or you're using and browsing, mm. right? So these are very crude metrics of how it's being used, right? But, but you, you and you I... Can, you can definitely see how using it in, in either of those two ways yeah. could actually change completely the well, effect it has on you, right? So these are totally. not arbitrary distinctions. But it can get even more granular than that in that let's say you and I both use Instagram heavily. Now, when I do use it and I don't have it on my phone right now, but the account that I do have that's open um, may have a very different feed or different kind of population of followers than you have, right? You might be following all of our friends who have babies and are getting married and are on a, going on holidays to Barbados or whatever's happening, right? You could be following people accounts and those people accounts will lend you to be more susceptible to social comparison because you're literally comparing yourself to other people, Yeah. right? Now, I'll reveal something about the pattern of my account, which is that um, I almost exclusively have thing-based accounts that I follow. Makes sense. So, look, obviously men are also more interested in things and women are more interested in people, which might also be a big difference between how men and women both access it. And we haven't even gone into gender and I'm not going to get into that because that's a whole other area, uh, which is just very big. Who's more into cats? I feel like women. I think women. Okay. Yeah, in general. Um, So I tend to follow museums. I tend to follow design blogs or blogs, accounts. Hmm. So I get pushed photos of objects, paintings, so you're sculptures. Not, but does that not make you have that uh, that sort of essence of comparison with your own design work? It does. Given that you are a designer it, it, and you make... Yeah, you it does, but in the same way it's going to a museum. 
which on balance, if you're somebody creative and you go to a museum, you tend not you do walk out a little bit kicking yourself with the why didn't I make that or why yeah. are they so great and I'm I'm not. But I'm used to that from going to museums for my entire life, right? Yeah. And I think that anyone feels that, and that's a motivating sort of feeling. Uh, but in on balance, again, yeah, you leave being motivated by the power and the genius of what you see. Mm. Um, and so what I've done is I've created sort of uh, or um, curated is probably the right word for it, a museum for myself. And I don't have many people at all that I follow. So I don't see people doing things. So that's not something that I even project to myself. Um, but if you are following friends, family, whatnot, well then social comparison is right there front and center. Whether you're predisposed to it or not, you're already gonna be in the firing line for it. So it's there's so many different ways that this can be accessed in terms mm. of the person who's accessing it, how it's being accessed, the frequency it's being accessed with, and the kind of things that you post and the kind of things that you follow, that it can get so granular. I think that you need such large numbers um, and you need some sort of a digital interface where you can monitor time, type, behavior, and personality, um, that it's a very hard thing to really nut out. It can be done. It's just a very hard study to follow. And you need to follow it for years and probably looking at some kind of also looking into some degree of social outcomes because you want to know does it matter. Because there's a lot of studies we know from reading psych papers, hmm. which we do all the time, which suggest that just because you don't self-report as feeling good, we don't know the effect that it has on on, on actual performance outcomes, behavior. I mean, a lot of people self-report as being less successful or less happy than their peers, but they may not actually be any different than their peers, right? So self-reporting, even in that sense, is, is quite dangerous. It's ridiculous, though. So anyway. So, how do you get around that? But anyway. It's tough. Yeah. It's tough. It's a very, it's it's deep. It's broad. So, um, do we have any conclusions then about about the? Um... Well, look, I think that it's a very hard thing to study. I've got even there's still more papers that we can talk about. There's so many papers about it, and it really comes down to each of these papers looking at different subtle facet of it. And when you're seeing contradictions, I think you're literally just seeing another angle that's being shined, right? And they're catching another subset of users or how they're accessing it but there doesn't seem to be any kind of well apart from that most recent paper the great tide of the research seems to suggest negative. that is the, a, there's a the general negative field, implications the general of, vibe is that it's negative yeah. the few people the few groups that seem to be wholly positive for based on very few studies are people with low IQ yeah, like, okay. like very low IQs seem to be generally only happier using social media so they feel a stronger sense of connection lower loneliness and these are people who probably are already starting off with a baseline of feeling quite lonely in the first place, right? So you can really only go can you up. read that into low IQ? What do you mean? Well, no. So, well, no, sorry. Not low IQ, but the other group, I got ahead of myself. The other group that shows um, positive response is people who are autistic spectrum. Right. And these are people who have obviously difficulties interacting socially in person. Which that, well, see, this that makes a lot of sense. And, that, sorry, and that's the one where it makes more sense that they would probably have higher reported loneliness Outside Out of social in media. the community. Yeah. Um, and then they can titrate the way they, they kind can of act, interact exactly. online. However, they and they can kind of hide behind the digital mask and interact. And, and there's no visual behavioral cues or emotional cues that they have to respond to. Everything's Which written down. Which might, might give them away, you know, kind of thing. It might give them away, but also makes it easier to interact if everything's written down for you, mm. right? And you can take it all. Face value is probably the wrong word to use for them because face value is terrible. Mm. But it's all quite... Um, it's all quite easy for them, or much easier. So, p- 
people with low IQ and people who are autistic spectrum mm. seem to do better with it. But one last study yep. that I thought was kind of worth talking about. Mm-hmm. So we talked about whether or not Instagram, for example, causes depression or loneliness. But there's a really good study from two years ago by Reese, which looked at whether or not you could use Instagram to diagnose depression. Ooh. Right? So we talked a bit before about whether or not social media use was a symptom of people who already have problems. Right. Or whether it's the cause of it. Now, regardless, you can actually use people's posts to work out what kind of mood they're in. And so what they did was they and took... And kind of, kind of in the same way as using a gambling device kind of sees through people's self-diagnosed exactly, right? depression and well, anxiety. We know that based on what you look at and how you post it, Instagram and Facebook know so much about you and your mood. So they can figure more out... More than you know. Wow. So what, this company, what these guys did was they looked at like 44,000 photos um, across 166 different users. And they used machine learning to kind of break it down into like... Um, color like average color or colors used um metadata components so like what are in the photos even like probably where it was taken all those kinds of things right uh, they looked at people one person two people uh facial recognition um what kind of mood the people the photos were showing and they could make a predictive assessment of whether or not that person had was depressed or or not it kind of makes sense. And they can, let me yeah. finish that. They compared that to um, general practitioners who saw the actual people and they found that their algorithm was better at predicting depressive behavior than a human was. They also compared um, human appraisal of the same photos using the same whatever humans, would, whatever you would try and work out from looking at the photos based on smiles or whatever other human things that we can think we could figure out and they found that their algorithm was still much better at predictive behavior, and they could even predict depression before it was picked up by a professional. That's amazing. That's actually yeah. incredible. Yeah. Because I was going to say, like, you can kind of, I mean, this might be just hot air, but I feel like you can tell in some people's posting whether they're dealing with some serious issues, irrespective of what they're actually posting. You can kind of go, okay, I kind of see where that's coming from. Based but on the pattern sounds, of it and things Well, like yeah, that. yeah, but your own intuitions, right? Yeah. But this is suggesting that it is better than human intuition yeah. around this stuff yeah. right like it algorithmically almost like spotify figuring out the commonalities exactly. between big other depressive people <laughs> and what kind of photos this what is kind big of... picture wow yeah so look it may be causing some of that depression <laughs> but in the meantime at the very least we could potentially be it. using it as yeah. you know and may, a responsible company might actually be looking at what someone's posting and trying to maybe titrate how it's being used, right? So you could, instead of being targeted for uh, your dollars and your attention, social good could be done by using this information and trying to figure out how you're using it, how you're posting on it, um, running these algorithms and trying to maybe skew your use of that app towards more happiness. And they could follow how you're doing by monitoring how you're using it, right? So you could work out if you're actually making a positive effect in someone's life by, again, how they're posting and some of the metrics you can pick up. So you could actually end up maybe finding the solution to Instagram's ills through Instagram. So I don't know. It's kind of cool, right? It, it's it's, it's no, close I, I can see I can see the potential benefit on the other end, which is quite good. Again, almost dovetailing into the way we started this podcast around autonomous cars. But exactly. The way that the these... 
at least for the Luddites among us, mm. when you're presented with these new technologies, you can kind yeah. of you see the bad before you see the good, right? Well, this but is there's some- always some good that can be, you know, if it can be kind of. Well, it goes back to that paradox, right? Which is that in principle, you'd think it should be doing good, right? It should be increasing your connection to other people. Therefore, the net effect should be a positive one mm. if it's used to its best potential. But as humans, we have a tendency to find the worst potential in so many things, right? The the lazy hack of something that ends up destroying us. Well, I'll tell you what happens, I guess. It's, it's usually the efficiency that gets sort of placed the highest importance on. So... so mm. The drive for efficiency leads us down to using it for its most nefarious purposes because it's obviously, yeah. in all these situations, going to be more efficient at doing things the worst way. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it so, seems you need some kind of overarching benefic- like benefactor, I mean, uh, what do you call it? Like a benevol- benevolent dictator that yeah. kind of says no. Some, some paternalism. Yeah, that's right. Despite the fact that it's really easy to get addicted to all this stuff, we're going to... Use it for these reasons and protect yeah. you from the bad. So. Well, so, yeah. So, we're saying that in some context, the free market is actually quite dangerous, right? And you need some hand to guide that a little bit to kind of make us better versions of ourselves. Mm. I think that with all these technologies, I mean, we're not like, you know, <laughs> tech pundits here. But I think the pattern is, right, that you see these great tech come through. And there's definitely a period where you get a little bit lost in the wilderness with it, right? Mm. Where there's a period where, like, for the cars it's absolutely worse than something else, right? So self-driving cars with regular cars could be a total catastrophe for a while. But once you get to a pure self-driving car economy, economy, it's totally different, right? And you can actually remove our our impulses and make a, you know, you can create an algorithm that is purely benevolent. Well, we can have self-driving social media. It just looks up things that it knows is best for us, right? Exactly. What we want to see. Instead of targeting us as a dollar... You know, it targets us for yeah. our, our kind of our gross well-being and trying to hopefully improving the economy in that sense, right? By improving the productivity and happiness. And I've, I've already divulged of- all of my sort of sense of self-agency to Spotify in the music realm, right? I don't, I don't yep. select any music for myself ever. Why don't I just keep going? Give it all to, you know, the benevolent Facebook. Big brother, man. Sometimes not so bad, right? Yeah, it'll tell me who to be friends with. It'll tell me, and then it's, it, it algorithmically knows which What's friends better? is best, which bed friends are best for me. Yeah, keen to see whether our our friendship stays alive in the digital realm. <laughs> if it likes us, if, if it yeah. thinks we're a good pair. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I think you know, we, there's a lot of we can see some hope through this still. Maybe I'm still like in like an early internet uh, kind of haze. Where I'm looking at the good side and thinking that this is purely going to be a good thing, but I still see a kind of a light within the tunnel once we kind of get through some of these uh, these kind of growing pains or or this teething. Mm. The terrible twos, the terrible tech twos, the terrible two point All right, that is it. That's it for this week. I don't know what we're doing next week. One of us is moving moving to Wagga Wagga. That's right. Justin's moving to Wagga. Well, which Justin? I am. Yeah, you yeah. are. Uh, which will be interesting we'll see if we can get this happening on an online space mm-hmm. we'll figure it out um, but yeah if you've got any questions just to, uh, well, just Jeremy's Iron podcast at gmail.com hit us up or if you know us just message us. just talk to us yeah just talk to us yeah <laughs> see you later see ya I'm glad we have someone who can join us in our anagram game 
take proper names and rearrange the letters to form a description of that person. Like, uh, elegant.